Let's pray. Father God, please speak to us this morning. Help us to take on your word, uh, trust you, believe what we read. Uh, Give us encouragement. Give us assurance. Uh, Point us to Jesus. Fill us with hope and strengthen us to live as people who love you and because we love you, love others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every 3.6 seconds, a child dies of hunger. Less than 1% of the world's population owns 99% of the world's wealth. In 2016, 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith. That's one every six minutes. I had a friend who was driving down a road in the outskirts of Canberra, a road that is raised a bit like the road that you go on when you're coming up here, uh, up above the flooded uh, paddocks. And the car went off the road at the one place where it was safe to run off the road and end up in a paddock. It rolled multiple times. He was not injured. He was taken to hospital to be checked and they discovered that he had a massive brain tumour that he'd blacked out and because he'd blacked out he was floppy and unconscious and he wasn't injured in the crash. I thought it might be the very thing that would lead my friend to consider Christ. I went and visited him and before I could say a word he says, don't you think this is going to make me believe in your God? I've met a number of people over the years and particularly in the world of cancer who have said to me, I no longer believe in God because of what they've been through. One woman who was a twin had lost her sister and was now looking after her children in the absence of their mother. And she said how she used to go to church and used to believe in God but she does no no longer. So the reality of this world is there's pain and there's difficulty and there's struggle. We see that on a global scale, but we begin to feel that in our bones. We know that to be true. We experience it in our relationships. And I think for Christians, we have a particularly difficult problem. And the problem is, how can we believe in a God who is all-powerful, and all loving when there is such pain and tragedy all around us. It's not the atheist's problem. The atheist may raise it as a problem, but it's a smokescreen. If they don't believe in God, then they don't have to struggle with the problem of how an almighty God can allow these things to happen. They're putting it out there to muddy the waters. But it's a Christian problem, and is there an answer? When I was in hospital with cancer, a friend sent me a text with Psalm 62. I didn't quite understand why he'd sent me the text at the time, but I read through it. And the overwhelming message of Psalm 62 is that God is strong and God is loving. And the more I meditated on these particular words, the more I realised that both things are essential. 
For if God is all-powerful but not loving, maybe he's just picking on me. And if God is all-loving but not all-powerful, maybe this is beyond his control and he's unable to do anything to help. But the scriptures don't let us stay there because they tell us about a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and yet is able to work in and through suffering and pain difficulty and strife he's even able to work through evil happening in our world to bring about his good purposes and this takes us to a verse which is probably one of the most famous verses in the bible Uh, i noted on one of the cards uh, that we've uh, got there to send to somebody who's going through a hard time at the moment it prints this verse that is all things work for the good of those who love him Is that all it is, a card verse? Is it one of those kind of glib statements that look good with a picture of a kitten hanging from a sock on a clothesline? I mean, is it a wonderful sunset picture that God works for the good of all? Or what about the difficulty and what about the pain? Well, I want to have a look at these verses with you afresh. Because these aren't empty words and they're not platitudes and they are not simply wishful thinking. And a careful look at these words in Romans 8, I think takes us into the heart of some of the most profound promises from God in the scriptures. And we would do well to meditate on these verses regularly, particularly as we get older, particularly as our world is so difficult And particularly as challenges come to us trusting God in the midst of the world that we live in. So let's have a careful look at these verses again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In the original, uh, the sentence starts with God. Uh, God works in all things and we know this. And I think it's, it's helpful just to realise that God is the focus of attention here. But I want to take the verse piece by piece and look first of all at the fact that it says that God is at work in all things. And in all things doesn't mean in some things. It doesn't mean simply in the good things. It also means in the bad. It doesn't mean simply in the healthy times. It also means in the sickness, in the pandemic. It doesn't simply mean that God is at work in prosperity. It also means that God's at work in poverty. God is at work in all things, the big and the small, the known and the unknown, the difficult and the straightforward, the religious and the secular. God is at work in everything. And the context for us in Romans chapter 8 is the context of suffering, We've seen general suffering that the world experiences. We see specific suffering that Christians experience. And God is the God who is at work in suffering. General suffering, Christian suffering. God is not simply the God of blessing only. I think sometimes we have a very small view of God that when something is going very well, there God is at work. But when things are painful, God seems to be absent. But let me read you these verses from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45 and verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord Yahweh and there is no other. 
I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. They're, they're challenging words, I think, to us because it means that it's beyond our ability to comprehend how an all-powerful and all-loving God might bring disaster. Why would he do that? Why would God bring suffering? Why would God bring pain? Why would God create disaster? It just doesn't fit comfortably with us. And I wonder whether this is an area where we need to do some serious reflection, both in Scripture, so that our view of God grows, but also on our experience, so that we understand our experiences better. A number of years back, I was doing some training in counselling and mentoring, and I was invited to draw a life map. Um, a life map is something that you, you can do it on a big sheet of butcher's paper, that's what we did, and and we kind of detailed key events in our life and there are a number of things that uh, stood out, some things that were really exciting and positive and, and, and joyous, like getting married, for example, and, and having our first child and things like that. And there were some other things that were a lot more difficult. And we had to map these things according to how we felt about God at the time and what had been the response afterwards. And there were three significant events uh, for me over the kind of 15 years or so, maybe, maybe longer, uh, that had all been massively difficult for us. But when we look back at these events, and I think Fiona shared this experience with me, they were also times when we came to appreciate God in ways that we'd never done before. The first was in 1996 when we were on holidays in Coffs Harbour. Uh, Fiona was five months pregnant. Uh, we'd just moved house. We'd planted a church at the beginning of the year. Uh, everything was pretty intense. We were exhausted and we needed a holiday. And we had a baby that was due in January, so we thought in September we'd go on holidays. Fiona woke me up at dawn on the 1st of October and said, I'm in labour. I thought, what? Most people didn't even know that she was pregnant because it was winter and you wear baggy clothes. And uh, four o'clock that afternoon, our daughter is born by caesarean, weighing less than a kilogram, and then airlifted to spend the next 100 days in intensive care. That was an incredible experience and it was incredibly painful because we were given about a 25 to 40% chance of her survival on day one and there were times when we were given next to no chance at all. One time I turned my phone on after preaching at church and our, our, our daughter, we, I was told I needed to rush in to see my daughter because I mightn't see her again. And the oxygen sats, for those of you who know, you're supposed to have you know, close to 100 with your oxygen sats. Uh, our, Grace's oxygen sats were 19. She, she was a grey, lifeless little body. And... There were many times where we prayed and we cried and we pleaded with God, as did so many others. And we wondered, what is God doing? But when we look back on that, they were times of growth. They were times when we, when we learnt to trust God, when, when our church learnt to pray, 
when we learnt to love and care for each other in all kinds of ways. Fast forward to 2010 and we're taking long service leave and we're travelling around Western Australia and uh, we're on a, on a gravel road on Pyramid Station somewhere um, west of Roeburn and all of a sudden the car's going sideways, the camper trailer's going in the opposite direction and then we're rolling through the desert. And uh, my daughter from the back of the car calls out when we come to a stop and we landed after rolling four times on our wheels. She said, where's Marcus? He wasn't in the car. And then we heard a scream from a distance. And he's about 100 metres away, having been thrown out of a rolling four-wheel drive. He thought he'd lost us. We thought we'd lost him. Didn't realise at the time that Fiona was the one who was most injured and got airlifted by a Royal Flying Doctor to Perth where she had to have a shoulder reconstruction and all sorts of things are going on. And yet it was, it was in that experience that Christians from Melbourne contacted people in Broome who reached out to us to give us accommodation in Caratha and provide us with a vehicle and look after us in practical ways. And our church from Canberra sends across money so that we can fly everybody and extra belongings back to Canberra. And then, 15 months later, I'm diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. I spent most of that first year really depressed couldn't work out what God was doing. It didn't make sense. We really were persuaded that he wanted us to plant a church in Darwin. Everything had pointed that direction. Everything had come together. Yet now when I look back on all those three events, I see ways that, that God was at work and that God had opened up opportunities for ministry. And... and that God had stretched our faith to learn to trust him in the pain. And I believe in my being that God is at work in all things. And so often in the good times and the prosperous times and the comfortable times, I think that I'm in control and I don't feel the need for my Father in heaven. But the scriptures here tell us that we know that in all things God works. Notice this, God works. He, he is at work. It, this is not um, what I used to call red gum theology. It'll be alright, it'll be alright, it'll be alright in the long run. Or Disney theology, um, happily ever after. This is not karma. Um, this is not when some things are inexplicable, then God is doing things. Uh, but when there's a scientific explanation, that's just normal. No, it's actually God is at work in all things. We've got to feel the weight of this, I think. This isn't just a, a line for a, a greeting card. This is a profound statement about our God, that he is at work in all things, that God has a purpose, he has a plan, he has intention. Um, he's bringing about good things. Uh, God is at work, notice, for the good of those who love him. That's his purpose. God's purpose is good. Bad things are happening, 
God has good purposes through those things. Good things are happening. God has a purpose through those things. And the good that God is at work in, we need to see carefully because the danger for us is that we think we know what our good is. So God, please uh, give us a dry weekend with the sun shining. How many of you prayed that? We prayed that at church, didn't we? God gave us a very wet weekend. But God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. Even those of you in swags, camper trailers and tents. God is at work in all things for those who love him. But what is the good? We, we, we may be tempted to think, well, it's good for the farmers, but it's not good for the campers. But that's not what God's saying. He's saying he's at work in all things for the good of those who love him. You love him, he's at work for your good. Well, what is your good? Well, look at the verse. He's at work for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the good. That's what God's working at. He's conforming you to the image of his son. It's raining? Praise God. He's conforming you to the image of his son. There may be obvious things there, learning a little bit of patience. Uh, there may be other things that we'll never appreciate. Maybe God will make them clear in eternity. We do not know. And often we won't recognise what God's doing at the time. But we need to appreciate that the whole trajectory of Scripture bears testimony to God working this way. One of the wonderful examples of it is right at the end of the book of Genesis. I probably mentioned this when we started Exodus. But Joseph, who dominates the landscape for the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, has been sold into slavery. He spent time in an Egyptian prison... And he rises to become effectively the prime minister of Egypt at a time of famine. He gets to take control of the whole famine relief and to provide care for uh, not only the Egyptians but the people of Israel who come for relief. And this is what God says uh, through Joseph. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's hard to imagine when 11 brothers, or 10 of them, threw their brother in a hole and then sold him and then lied to their father that he'd been killed, that God was at work. What on earth is God doing in that? Well, Joseph tells us at the end of Genesis, saving many lives. And friends, that's the trajectory, isn't it? You, you go forward right through the Bible and, and, and Moses and, and, and Samuel and David and Solomon and the prophets and, and you find your way into the New Testament and then you see Jesus. Jesus being betrayed sold for 30 pieces of silver. 
whipped, mocked, scourged, crown of thorns, nails through his hands, nails through his feet. Incredible evil. The abomination that causes desolation. Here is the, the worst thing that humanity could possibly do. Here is the greatest of all evils taking place. What's God doing? Working for the good of those who love him. What you meant for evil, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. So we, we have an incredible father in heaven who works this way. And he does so because he wants us to become more and more like his son. He's making us more like Jesus. He's making us to be more like the people that we're actually created to be. You know who is the perfect image of God? It's Jesus. And we were created to display God's image. And so we will do that more and more and increasingly well and precisely as we become more like Jesus. And that's what God's doing through the suffering and through the pain and through the good times. And in all situations, God is changing us to become more and more like Jesus. And we thank him for that. It doesn't mean it won't hurt. But that's what God is doing. He's conforming us to the likeness of his son. And we experience that, I think, bit by bit with the disciplines and, and, and the changes that take place in this life with people's character changing and, and people becoming more God-focused and people learning to love like God does and, and, and people growing in trust and so on. And we'll experience it fully in the life to come, completely. One day we will see people perfectly in the image of God and friends here is what God is on about making us more like Christ but even that is not the end even that is not the ultimate goal now look at, at what verse 29 says he who uh, where is it for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, God is at work through all things to make us more like Jesus so that Jesus might be preeminent. See, we, we, even thinking about God working in us to make us more like Jesus, if it's left there, then it, it's ultimately selfish. It's, it's about us. But God is doing that for the sake of Christ, to make Christ number one in everything and then we see this this extraordinary picture in verse 30 those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified uh, now it's it's quite a procession uh, these verses all big theological terms um, predestination calling justification glorification what do we make of that well what we see is that God's plan is from before all things to see things through to the end of all things and God is in control of all this such that he's able to speak of it all as if it's past tense glorification is yet to come but he speaks about it as if it's already taken place One of the things that I struggled with when I was a young Christian was assurance of salvation. In fact, 
in my high school years, I went up the front to become a Christian, I think it was four or five times. You know, another evangelist had come to town, another guest speaker, and I'd be convicted of my sin, and I'd think I'd, I'll do it properly this time. Um, because I'd sinned between then and, and now, and um, in fact, I sinned so much that I used to have very detailed prayer times at night because I did worry that maybe if I hadn't confessed my sin, then I wouldn't go to heaven. And what I failed to appreciate was that Jesus' death justified me, that is, it declared me right before God, or to use the language of a debt, it paid the debt completely. And because I'd been justified, then when I stood before God on the day of judgment, a day when debts needed to be paid, God would look at my account and see that the debt had been paid already and let me in. But I was caught up thinking, even though the death of Jesus was significant, that I needed to be good enough, I needed to repent enough, I needed to say sorry enough, I needed to do enough things, and I lacked, therefore, the assurance that God would accept me. And Romans was the book that made it clear that because Jesus had paid the price fully, I had nothing to fear. And that, I think, is at the core of these statements. Because God has a plan and he's put it into effect through Jesus and in Jesus we can be fully justified, therefore we will be glorified. Just look to Jesus. So friends, we have nothing to fear then if we look to Jesus because God is a God who keeps his promises and I'll move through this next bit a little bit more quickly, but these are some of the most wonderful promises in the Bible. Um, we need to let them sink in. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be? Well, let's put it another way. If the creator and sustainer and judge of all the universe is for us, who could possibly win in a battle against him? See, if God is for us, then it doesn't matter what opposition, what struggle, what suffering we may go through, it can never compare, it won't compete with God's commitment to us. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things see are we tempted to think that God is holding out on us at times but if Jesus was given by God the greatest gift that God could ever give what would he hold back that was of good for us nothing he graciously gives all things or in verse 33 who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen it is God who justifies. In other words, nobody. Who is then the one who condemns? Well, no one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. See, it's a 
it's a courtroom scene picture in a way it's it's uh, Satan as the accuser standing there saying to God it's outrageous that you should accept Dave McDonald because I can tell you what Dave McDonald has done what he said and even what he's thought and you have to hold him guilty but then Jesus says yep he did all that did all those things he was guilty but look at my hands look at my feet look at my side I paid it all Satan has no basis for accusation every charge is true but the penalty has been paid in full I don't know if uh, some of you know this song um, I've written the words here and I can't remember the name of it or whether we sing it at Salt. But, but there's a, a couple of the, um, the verses that strike me with this picture. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Someone tell me what that song is. It's called Before the Throne of, the the throne of God Above. Yeah, We do sing it sometimes, don't we? I knew I'd heard it somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It will be now. It will be now, exactly. It will be now, yeah. 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 But understanding this means we can have full confidence before God. And if any of you are unsure about where you stand with God, you don't have to be unsure. It's not arrogance to say, I'm going to heaven. It's only arrogance to say that if you think you can earn your way there. Or if you think that somehow you've been good enough. But if you know that you'll never be good enough and Jesus has paid it all, then it's humble to say you're going to heaven because it's taking Jesus seriously. Because Jesus isn't mucking around when he dies for you. Well then, let's look at these, these final verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or famine or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written... For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, friends, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing that we experience, nothing that happens to us, nothing that we go through, here we see God's love is held tightly and firmly in Jesus. And we are held in Jesus. Some of us, I think, are tempted to look at the circumstances and when they're going well, think God loves me. When they're not going so well, maybe he doesn't. And we end up being a little bit like that, that little boy who picks the daisy and he's trying to work out whether his girlfriend's on board. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. Oh, good. 
You just got to work out which one to start on, don't you? <laughs> but if you look to your circumstances, some days it'll be great. Some days it won't be so great. For some people, it'll never, ever feel like God loves you. That's why we don't look to our circumstances for the evidence. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 1 John 4.7 This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's where you see the love of God. Not in what happens to you one day or the next. Not in the worst or the best of circumstances, but in Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus, friends. Keep turning to Christ and seeing the incontrovertible evidence that God is working in all things for your good. So let me just wrap up a few things here. Um, I guess we should start with a couple of questions. How big is your God? Or how big, to put it another way, how big do you really think God is? Do you limit God sometimes? Happy to see God at work in the blessing, not so happy to see God at work in the suffering. It's a real temptation. This is a passage and a passage that points to a truth that is, as we saw from Joseph through to Jesus, true in the arc of scripture, that God is at work in all things, the good and the bad, for his ultimate good of making us like Christ so that Christ will be the firstborn of a whole new creation. God is doing that. And we need to realise that God is that big. And that big God, that loving God, that all-powerful and all-loving, majestic creator has humbled himself to be our saviour. And we can be justified before God, no matter what we've done, where we've been, how bad, how evil, how ashamed, we can turn to Christ and receive forgiveness to be justified before God. Satan wants you to doubt God's power. He wants you to doubt God's trustworthiness. He's tempting you to put your trust in all kinds of things other than God. But only God can ultimately be trusted. And nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing that happens outside you. And I want to say nothing that happens inside you. I had the opportunity um, a few years ago now, just a few, to take the funeral of a man who was 89 who had been my Sunday school teacher. Uh, he taught me the scriptures from when I was 12 years of age. Uh, later on in life, he became the chairman of the, the uh, committee that was organising the support raising for uh, the AFES campus ministry that I was doing in Canberra. He 
and I were in a Methodist that became a uniting church and he and his wife were concerned about what was going on uh, within the uniting church and they left a um, number of years back and in his late 70s, he and his wife planted a new church in Canberra, uh, which uh, he led until he was 89. And I remember visiting him in hospital um, over a couple of times and he said to me on one occasion, Dave, I'm, I'm actually really scared. Uh, I'm scared that maybe I haven't done enough. I'm, I'm scared that maybe I won't be accepted. And I was able to say to him, gently but firmly, Howard, when has that ever been the means by which God accepts you? Doing enough. You taught me that years ago. You've led a church that's never been based on people earning their way to heaven. It's always been on the mercy and the grace of God. But... In his weakest moments, Satan was tempting him to despair. And one day that might be each of us. And so let's be people who pray for one another. That our hearts will turn to God and that we'll take hold of his promises. And this is something I, I'm just riffing a, a bit here, but... I've noticed also that when some people um, have reached the, the older stages of life and sometimes their, their thinking becomes muddled, and this was true for my mother, um, there are times when the words of songs come back very powerfully. And I think it's a, it's a great encouragement for us to sing truth. Uh, if, if there's something about the nature of music that, that kind of gets it inside in, in a way that stays. It's interesting, you might have seen the documentary with, um, with Glenn Campbell who had Alzheimer's. Uh, he couldn't string words together but you put him on stage and he could sing every song. Um, there's something just about the way that the mind works and um, Many people have said to me, just even on their deathbeds, that it's been wonderful to hear the, the songs, to hear the Christian music, to hear the truth of God again. And so let's remember the gospel in our music. Well, let's, um, let's wrap it up there. Um, let, me, let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you again for, that nothing can separate us uh, from your love, we thank you for your goodness, uh, for your mercy. Um, please help us to so um, take hold of your gift uh, and know that you've taken hold of us, that we trust you implicitly. Um, may we be people who never look to false hopes, uh, but always see the secure hope that is found in your promises through Christ. We thank you for the encouragement of the scriptures here that the Spirit intercedes for us. And in this part of Romans 8, that Jesus intercedes for us.
And that reminds us that you're just so committed to us that your son, your spirit would intercede on our behalf. And we thank you that your love is seen so securely in Christ that it's, uh, that it's real. That we can look back and see outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago the incontrovertible evidence that you're committed to the people that you've created. Um, we thank you for Christ. And we ask that you'll help us to trust you, um, help us to keep trusting you even when we're tempted not to, um, that our hope will remain in your promises for eternity and that you'll move us in confidence to love others and to express our, our living hope uh, in our relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.